goes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Code pink for freedom, code pink for peace. was Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. I'm Danica of Code Pink. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI, 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW, 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., and KPFT, 90.1 FM in Houston, and many other community radio stations like Western Mass Community Broadcasting, WMCBLP, 107.9 FM. We're also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Check out our website at www.codepink.org forward slash radio, where you will find all of our episodes from episode one to our most recent. Usually, um, the schedule slot in our radio show is for Middle East, but because of the escalation in Ukraine, we'll be talking about no war in Ukraine today, negotiations, not escalation. We'll hear from Marcy Winograd, Medea Benjamin, and Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson is an adjunct professor of government public policy at the College of William and Mary and the former chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell from 2002 to 2005. He's a critic of U.S. foreign policy surrounding the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, Iran and the new Cold Wars with China and Russia, and asserts that the U.S. is not a democracy but a war state that forces its only its will on the global community. In 2020, Wilkerson worked on bipartisan projects to prepare for the possibility for, that a defeated Donald Trump would refuse to leave office. We'll also hear from Reiner Braun, the executive director of the International Peace Bureau, the founder of No to NATO Network, and is active with the International Network of Engineers and Scientists for Global Responsibility, or INES, and the International Association of Lawyers Against Nuclear Arms. He is also the author of several books, including Einstein in Peace and a biography about the Peace Nobel Laureate Joseph Rotblatt. Before we get started with our program, I would like to uh, go to Medea now for an update also on Ukraine and Afghanistan. Well, really, I, I think in terms of Afghanistan, um, unfortunately, the emphasis uh, and the momentum we had to start unfreezing those assets, the over $7 billion that the U.S. is holding, uh, has been so overshadowed by the Uh, Ukraine tragedy. Uh, I also have learned that the money that the UN has asked in an emergency appeal for $5 billion for Afghanistan humanitarian aid, um, many countries are now switching that to go to Ukraine refugees. And so once again, it's Afghan people who are suffering from 
all kinds of things that go on in the world that are not of their own making. Uh, in terms of Ukraine, we're excited to be working with our friends in Europe, the Stop the War Coalition UK, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament in the UK, uh, and the No to NATO Network uh, as we build up this global movement to stop this war. Everyone, again, thank you so much. And with that, uh, I'll pass it to Cole to introduce Elizabeth. Yeah. Uh we, Elizabeth Elizaveta Koprianova is a, a Northeastern University undergraduate, and she's a Russian national from Moscow and, and an intern with Mass Peace Action uh, this spring. So I want to introduce Elizaveta to give us her perspective on the situation. Hi, everyone. And I just wanted to start by saying that this situation is unacceptable at any level in the 21st century. And yes, I'm a Russian citizen, but I'm also a regular person, just like any of you. So I don't have the full information in order to have a concrete position. Therefore, I don't want and don't have one at the moment. But all I want to say is that I'm very saddened and devastated to see that this is the way the world approaches and handles conflicts in the 21st century. We're living in a modern developed world where diplomacy and negotiation should be used as a resolution and not arms and bloodshed. Negotiations and talks are already happening and taking place, and we should be supporting and pushing them forward. Also, I think it's crucial to add for me that not all Russians are responsible for what the government does. And in fact, the majority of us are for peace and against war. But at the same time, people in Russia are threatened by even saying no war because this is seen as betrayal to the motherland, and you can be sentenced for 20 years to prison. And today, an hour ago, I learned that even kids from age 7 to 11 have been put in cells for overnight just because they came out with posters, no war. Also, I have many Ukrainian friends, and we are utterly worried about the conflict and taking any steps we can to be a part of the resolution. Even if the war ends tomorrow, the consequences of it will still take decades to normalize. So everyone in Russia understands that young people around the world are now taking and will later have the to take the most sincere and active part in resolving the consequences and normalization of relations between Russia, Ukraine, and the rest of the world. So all I want to say is that right now, diplomacy and negotiations is the path towards the resolution. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. It, it means a lot to us, you know, to hear from you. And that's really tragic about the silencing of the anti-war voices in Russia. You know, it's day six of Russia's unjustifiable invasion of Ukraine, and over 600 have died. But it's day 2,555 of the U.S.-Saudi-UAE war on Yemen, and 377,000 have died or been starved as a result of the war in Yemen. And yet there's no discussion of it on the media. Most Americans don't even know where Yemen is, don't even know that we're at war in Yemen. So it's an unacceptable situation. It's racist. It's been commented by several commentators that some of, even though the situation in Ukraine is absolutely unacceptable, the extreme attention being given to it and the extreme ignorance of the many other wars started by the US, it reflects a racial bias. And so anyway, um, 
It's uh, going to be the seventh anniversary of the start of the war in two weeks. And so today there were nationwide rallies in a number of cities calling on Congress to pass a war powers resolution to end the war in Yemen. You know, Congress did that three years ago. It, both houses of Congress, the House and the Senate, passed a war powers resolution, the first time one has ever passed by the Congress, telling President Trump to cut off support for the Saudi UAE war in Yemen. Trump vetoed it, so the war did not end. And Biden, on his campaign trail, said he was going to end the war in Yemen. Well, he hasn't ended it. He's doubled down on it and escalated it further. So uh, it's time for another war powers resolution. So we need to ask for Congress to introduce those resolutions in both houses. You know, a war powers resolution is, has to be brought to a vote. So once it's introduced, there will be a vote in the House and hopefully also in the Senate if we can get one brave senator to introduce that resolution. Uh, so that's, that's what's going on with the Yemen war. Thank you so much. Cole Harrison with Massachusetts Peace Action, the executive director. Uh, and I hear that... Uh, Congressman DeFazio is expected to introduce that war powers resolution on Yemen in March. Well, here we are in March, uh, but our attention is turned elsewhere and we understand why. Uh, Medea, go ahead, please introduce our, our guest who's coming to us. I think it's 2 a.m. in Europe. Uh, yes, I'm really delighted to introduce a good friend of mine, Reiner Braun, who is the German journalist, historian, a peace activist, uh, he has worked for or been the director of a number of wonderful organizations, uh, including Scientists for Peace and Sustainability, the International Network of Engineers and Scientists for Global Responsibility, the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science, the International Association of Lawyers Against Nuclear Arms, the German Pugwash Group, and now he is the co-president of the International Peace Bureau. He's also, also the author of several books, including Einstein in Peace, and I have had the privilege of working with him in numerous campaigns, such as the campaign against the U.S. airbase in Rammstein, the campaign against killer drones, uh, and the No to NATO campaign. And um, we're really anxious to hear from you, Reiner. Thank you. Thank you, Medea. Thank you, dear colleagues and dear friends. Good morning. And it's really a pleasure to be with you in these horrible times. You know, the war is for us around the corner. And it is absolutely needed to say first, there, will be, there is no reason for this aggression of Russia against Ukraine. We condemn deeply the war against Ukraine and our solidarity with the people in Ukraine, but our solidarity is also with the people in Russia which are fighting against the war. And it is great to stay and to see that thousands of Russian people are going on the streets under very repressive conditions. For the first time yesterday, we had a protest manifestation in front of the Lomonosov University by students of this university. We had many, many people in many cities of Russia which are going on the street, like in our country. We had more than 100,000 on the streets in Berlin last Sunday, and we are pre preparing with you the protest action next week. 
with protest action days in Germany and in many cities and countries of Europe. And this is absolutely necessary. Let me say it in one broad sentence. The period, the 30 years period after the Cold War is over. We are coming now in a new period of a very aggressive politics. And definitely it is absolutely needed to condemn the Russian aggression. But it's also necessary to say the conditions that this aggression happened was developed by the Western countries above all by NATO. The NATO enlargement, the NATO expansion to the East, and not to take care of Russian security interests is the main reason for this war. And NATO is now using the chance not only to become even stronger than as the military alliance of the world, but start with a dramatic, intensive new arms race. And my country, Germany, is definitely in the forefront. We never had an enlargement of the military budget than it will be in the next year. We have a special fund now for 100 billion US, 100 billion euro we never had. And the enlargement of the weight of the military budget from 1.25% to more than 2%. This means instead of 50 billion every year, we will spend 80 billion. And this is such a situation where the poorest in the world become more poor and where the climate crisis is absolutely not solved. We all were listening to the new IPCC report, which dramatically underline in which big danger the world is. And when I'm looking to these conditions, I can only say the way of armament race, the way of wars is the wrong way. And let me underline that we are opposing these wars and are fighting on the street. But we are also absolutely against these double standards, our official politics and our governments. The governments say, okay, we want a peace in Ukraine, and they are doing wars all around the world. They are unhappy that you mention Afghanistan and Yemen. And I'm happy, to, and we need to say these politics of double standards condemning these wars and preparing all the other wars in the world, in Africa and Asia and other countries, even in Central Europe. These are really double standards. And we said no to these double standards. We want peace. So they are strongly against more weapons to the Ukraine. We are strongly engaged sanctions. Because sanctions are against the poor people. Poor people, the normal people are suffering by sanctions. So what is needed is a peace process. First of all, stop the war, ceasefire, and reduction of the Russian troops. But we need in Europe, and I think not only in Europe, a new politics of common security as the alternative of war and arms race. Common security means I'm only secure, I'm only safe, but my partner is also safe. We have to work together. Security is, you can only get security in a double pack, your security and the security of your neighbor. And that is the alternative to this brutal war in Ukraine, but also for the alternative for the arms race and for further NATO expansion, which will lead us to more wars. So my call tonight is please go on the street, 
protest against the war. Let us unite in a worldwide peace movement for peace and disarmament for common security and to stop this brutal war in the Ukraine. Peace is the alternative. And to follow with the last sentence of the German Nobel Peace Laureate Willy Brandt, he said in his famous speech when he got the Nobel Peace Prize, war is the top of irrationality. Rational is only peace. Let us fight for peace. And thank you so much for the invitation tonight. Thank you so much, Rainer Bronner. So I believe, Cole, you're going to introduce our next speaker. Okay, right. Uh, so I want to welcome Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. He is an adjunct professor of government and public policy at the College of William and Mary. And he was the former chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell uh, from 2002 to 2005. Uh, Larry. Let me say thank you to uh, everyone here. Uh, Herr Braun, uh, Massachusetts Peace Action Code Pink. And let me just cite some history here for a moment. And... I know everyone probably is familiar with this history, but they might not be familiar, familiar with the aspects of it that I'm going to point out. One is that one of the people who knew Russia probably as well as anyone in the world, certainly anyone from North America, from the United States, George Kennan, famous for the long telegram from Moscow that sort of commenced the, the U.S. posture in the Cold War. But... Kennan would say many times later that we didn't do all the things that he recommended we do. His essential point was all we had to do was be ourselves and demonstrate to the world who we were and why we were who we were, and Russia would collapse eventually. Well, in his really advanced years, uh, I think he was about 98 or 99 when he came to visit Secretary Powell at that time, he wanted Powell to know that one of the things that was probably the greatest strategic era, in fact, he called it that, the greatest strategic era at the beginning of the 21st century was the expansion of NATO. And he essentially predicted what is happening today, what happened with Georgia, what is happening now with Ukraine, and what's been happening for some time since the wild abandon of the United States and its NATO partners took NATO into 30 countries. Um, imagine, if you will, for a moment, what Article 5 means with regard to 30 countries. Imagine if I were to go out to, let's say, somewhere in West Texas and find me a cattle rancher and say, do you know where Montenegro is? The first thing he would probably say is, after he laughed, no, where is it? And I would tell him where it was, and I would then acquaint him with the fact that he is willing to risk nuclear war to defend Montenegro. And I'd ask him how he felt about that. Well, I can guarantee you he wouldn't feel too content about it. And yet that's what we've done. And at the same time we did that, we made Article 5 itself a ridiculous consideration when in fact it was probably the most important part of the political and the military alliance by going into out-of-area operations, everything from Libya to Syria to Afghanistan and so forth. How, how is that an Article 5 political or military alliance? And then the second thing I'd bring to your attention is what was said by both the head of delegation for Russia and the head of delegation for Ukraine 
as the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, whose report came out on the 28th, as was previously mentioned, what they said uh, in respect to this conflict, the head of Ukrainian delegation essentially said, we should be working on reducing fossil fuels, which is what this conflict is all about. She had a point there. Don't have time to go into it, but she had a point there. Um, and the head of Russian delegation condemned the invasion. He condemned his own leader, Vladimir Putin. Um, I don't know what's going to happen to him when he gets back to Moscow, but uh, that, those were brave remarks coming from these two people. But they were remarks that are uh, unlike what I was saying before about unreality. They were remarks that face a stark reality. And that is, if you look at the technical section of that report, even in the summary, which has to be approved by every nation, but the technical section in the body of the report tells you the real, the real nitty gritty. If you look at that section, you can conclude that you do not want to live in a 1.5 degree world. You probably can't live in a two degree world, and we are very likely headed for a three or four degree world. That's the end of life on this planet as we know it, and we're doing these things like invading Ukraine or in the case of the United States, fomenting a coup in 2014 and having its CIA support neo-Nazis inside Ukraine as one of their arms, so to speak, um, and all manner of other dastardly deeds when we should be looking at the two really serious threats in the world today. One staring us in the face since the United States abandoned the ABM Treaty, abandoned the Open Skies Treaty, abandoned the INF treaty and was about to abandon START too until Vladimir Putin said, no, let's probably keep that one. And we managed to keep that one. Nuclear weapons. We have a new lease on life for nuclear weapons. I'm waiting eagerly to see President Biden's nuclear posture review because he promised to take some of this life out of the renewal of nuclear weapons and their tactical utility on the battlefield. Uh, I'm not sure he's going to do it. I hope this Ukraine crisis doesn't motivate him to not do it. But at any rate, even if he does do what he said he's going to do, we're still way behind the power curve on nuclear weapons. And there is big a threat in the looking us right in the face as the climate crisis. But ultimately, the climate crisis is going to make even them not mean a thing because we are going to be like the dinosaurs. We're not going to be here anymore. The earth will go on. It'll have no problem. It'll go another four and a half, maybe five billion years before it burns out in the sun, but we won't be on it. And that's the truth. And I'm glad to see that we finally have a report that begins to go into the kind of detail necessary to get people's attention. My question is, will it get their attention? It certainly won't get their attention as the two heads of delegation at the IPCC, one for Ukraine, one for Russia, Made, made a point of if we keep having these distractors. Uh, it's tragic what's going on in Ukraine, but it's a transient event. It is an event that shouldn't have happened, and it's an event that's distracting the world from the things it should be doing. The kind of cooperation, the kind of comity, the kind of peace, as Herr Braun said, that we need in order to tackle this threat and continue to live on this planet. So that's the thing that bothers me about this crisis. There are other aspects of it I could talk to you all night about. This is all about weapons sales. It, let me give you an example. Ukraine was the fourth or fifth biggest weapons merchant in the world. Well, look what both Moscow 
and Washington, the top two, have done to that. Now Ukraine is selling all of its weapons to itself. The motivations for this conflict are just criminal, absolutely criminal. Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Raytheon, Grumman, and a host of other defense contractors, I call them merchants of war, are going to make a fortune off this. And that's the reason we're having this conflict. That's the reason we started spreading NATO out so we could sell arms to more and more countries. This is utter insanity. And yet we're practicing it. We've been practicing it since the end of the Cold War, and particularly badly. And I don't see any end to it unless we get enough people like you have assembled here tonight that have generated enough power and enough political oomph to begin to make people take notice of what we're saying and to begin to do something about it. And I'm really proud of those Russians who I, I got a report today that there are more of them now actually defying the rules that have been set out for them in the, in the ring environment of Moscow. And they're coming out and they're coming out in other cities too. They are truly brave citizens to do that because they probably know pretty much what's going to happen to them. So that's, uh, that's the essence of what I have to say. This is all bad, and it's bad in some serious ways that we've never confronted on this planet before. The most alarming of which is the fact that the climate is getting ready to throw us off, and we're doing too little about it, too late. We have all the science. We have all the scientists. We have all the data that we need to begin to do amelioration and adaptation and to keep us down by mid-century to two or under in terms of degree temperature rise. But we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And that's the biggest challenge we've got in front of us right now. Thank you. I spent 10 years in the United States Army as a combat medic. I deployed to Baghdad in 2004. I'm here to return my Global War on Terrorism Service Medal in solidarity with the people of Iraq and the people of Afghanistan. I am deeply sorry for the destruction that we have caused in those countries and around the globe. These were lies. I'm giving them back. Hear the warmonger speak, naive.
to tell you that I blame myself first. Should have done my homework. Should have realized the lies before I participated in them. So this symbolic act, this throwing of the medal, is for all those people out there who are wondering why we're doing it. Do your homework. Desperate fear, lies, and hate to justify regime change. World control is the Welcome back, everyone. That was Mistahi Corkhill's No to NATO. And we're back with Code Pink Radio. And we will continue to hear from Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson and Reiner Braun. I'm Danica at Code Pink. You're listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., and KPFD in Houston. Uh, I'm going to take the privilege of the first question, and I'd like to ask uh, Larry and Reiner, if there were a negotiated settlement of this conflict, in the, I'm not, I don't mean in the ideal world, but in the real world, what would it look like? You know, Larry, you are first, because I was starting the first round. <laughs> <laughs> You're too kind. Uh, <laughs> I would go back to the Minsk Agreement. Well, let me back up for a second. Uh, Fyodor Lubinov, uh, a couple of weeks ago in a webinar with me and a couple of other people, he's a Russian journalist, suggested that we need a new Helsinki Act, the final act, or a Paris Accord. Um, that it's time to alter the architecture of transatlantic security again for the third time since 1940. And what we ought to shoot for, you know, people think the Helsinki, a lot of my Republican Party anyway, thought the Helsinki Final Act was uh, just a utopian move. Well, it helped Gorbachev with Perestroika and Glasnost. It, it, it had a lot to do with what happened with the thinking and the philosophy of Gorbachev. Um, so I think Fyodor's got, got something there. We need to have a new security architecture in Europe. Um, uh, Herr Braun mentioned that we need to get rid of NATO and we need to have a different kind of security approach. Um, I, th I don't think that's a road too far. I think we should do that. 
I, I think that's the ultimate solution that might get this whole business into a different can where it's not so difficult to deal with on, a, on an ongoing basis. But if, if you're going to solve this present crisis, at least temporarily, so you can begin to do some serious talking, and as <laughs> both heads of delegation at the IPCC said, get on to the really serious issues, and nuclear weapons is one you need to get on right away. And you need to bring in Israel. You bring in India and Pakistan and China. We don't need these bilateral agreements anymore. We need multilateral nuclear arms control now. Um, if you're going to do this, then you probably need an interim solution that looks something like this. Okay, you've got the whole referenda in the two oblasts that you really covet. And if they vote for autonomy and association with Russia, Kiev, you've got to accept that. And you know that channel you just carved out down to Odessa because that's really what the Russian Navy wants. They, you know, the, the ports in Crimea are not key. The port in Odessa is key. They need that port. They need it for the same reason the Chinese need the Dash 9 line, to have room to get their fleet out in time of conflict. That's the only way the Russian Navy is going to feel comfortable. So that's, that's, I think, what he's going to wind up doing eventually, in addition to the other things he's doing. So you have to come to some interim solution that recognizes that and says, okay, now let's sit down and talk about it. How long do we let this last? Can it last if the people have voted for it? Should it last if they voted for it? Probably it should. And Ukraine will look a little bit different at the end of the day, but we'll have peace and we can do things to build this new architecture in Europe where everybody can be a part, Russia included. I remember the halcyon days of 1992 when Colin Powell was so ecstatic that Russia might in the future be a member of the NATO alliance, that the cooperation was so tremendous at that moment that he was lecturing former Warsaw Pact generals on how they should live in a democracy and this sort of thing. And they were listening to him. And then we just made mistake after mistake after mistake, all basically motivated by money and by who's really running this country now, the oligarchs in this country who are running this country. Um, what a shame. Rainer, what's your take? What is there a deal possible? You know, I, definitely I have not to oppose Larry, you know, but let me underline two points. First of all, I think we need a very quick short-term answer. And this is the war must end. And this means ceasefire and bring the troops home. Because, you know, when you are looking to the day-to-day -day situation and see how the people in Ukraine are suffering under the war, the day-to-day -day killing, the day-to-day -day destroying of the country, we have to stop the war. And I'm saying this knowing that Ukraine in the Soviet Union was one of the richest part of the Soviet Union. Now Ukraine is the poorest country in Europe. It is even poorer than Moldavia. So we have to stop the war and hope that the life of the people will become step to step better, even knowing that a better life in Ukraine absolutely needs to overcome the oligarch dictatorship in Ukraine. But saying this, I absolutely underline what Larry was saying. We need a new European peace architecture. And this means for me, we have to go back to Olaf Palme. We have in some months, we have the 40th anniversary of the first Olaf Palme report, which was the background for the security system in Europe of the 80s and the 90s. And we have to come back to these 
to a new uh, OLAF primary port. And in the National Peace Bureau, <coughs> together with the ITOC, the World Trade Unions, and the OLAF Primary Center, is working on a new OLAF primary port as the background for a new European peace architecture. And it sets the rules of OLAF primary. Security is only possible when both sides are secure. This is the background of this report. And we need this because of the situation in Europe and in the world. But we also need this to solve the global problems of the world, above all the climate problem. Can you imagine we will solve the climate problem on the top of walls and rockets? It can only be solved in the period of cooperation, when people and countries are working together. And that is the sense of the new Olaf Palmer report. For both, and this is the question to be realistic or not realistic. You know, I'm on the way, I'm in favor of Einstein, who said, never be a realist. When you are a realist, you're always on the side of the powerful people of the world. We must be unrealistic. We must ask for what is needed. And needed is a peace process and a disarmament process. And how to get to this in these awful times? I think the only forces we can rely on, and I know that it's very difficult, it's a long-term process, are the people on the street in Moscow, in Ukraine, hopefully, and in all countries of the world. So we have to work on a peaceful worldwide peace coalition of moving, acting people. That is the key point. And then we will find partners. When you have a movement, we will find partners in the parliaments, we will find partners in the churches, in the trade unions, in other societal parts. And this we have to bring together for a new coalition. You know, you know better than me, the Vietnam War was not won in the first round. It was a long-term process. And without the people on the street, it would never happen. So let us go back to this situation and do the best to create such a peace coalition which we need. That is the only alternative. And let me answer two questions shortly, which I saw in the chat. First, neutrality of Ukraine. Yes, that would be a great step forward. That would be a vision. Because Ukraine is a country between Europe, in the middle of Europe. And the best way for Ukraine is to be a partner to both sides, to the European Union, to the NATO countries, and to Russia. That is the historical role of uh, Ukraine as a country between the two parts of Europe. But also, it's a country between Europe and Eurasia. This makes these countries so important. Look to what Brzezinski was writing in his book. Ukraine is the keystone on one side for weakening Russia, on the other side as a country between Europe and Asia, which can bring together these two continents, these Eurasian continents in peace and for the developing of both continents. So, yes, <coughs> A neutral Ukraine would be a big step forward. And the same small step would be uh, the North Stream 2. You know, I am personally not very much in favor of the North Stream 2 by ecological reasons, because we have to overcome the fossil fuel period. And this includes gas. But now it could be a part for bringing Russia and Europe together 
solving the energy problems in Europe and the energy prices are rising. The poor people cannot pay their energy any longer because the costs are so high. And for this turn time we need as a part of a common security process of a politics of detente, we need also this Nord Stream 2. To overcome Nord Stream 2 means to go to the sun on both sides of, of Europe But this is a longer-term period. Yes, I'm in favor of Nord Stream 2. And I'm definitely against this stupid, horrible fracking gas from the United States, which on one side is more expensive and on the other side is more destroying the environment. So stop this horrible fracking and better for a short-term period to have Nord Stream 2 than fracking. That is my answer for the Nord Stream 2. But again, for both We need a new security architecture in Europe. And this is the key challenge. And this is we have to work on for the next future when we are overcoming this horrible, brutal war. Yes, hopefully that will be the silver lining, a new security agreement, far more inclusive. Okay, Mindy, you want to ask a question? <clears throat> yeah, I'd like to ask a If it's all right, I'd like to ask a question. Yeah. I just in the short term. Do you see, either of you, any possibility that Putin will be forced to step aside? I could say, I see that happening if the oligarchs who are yeah. mostly around him to protect him and whose money, incidentally, is in U.S. banks. Um, I don't know what they're going to do now with the sanctions. We supposedly have frozen their money in those banks, but... If you listen to people like Misha Glenny, it's about two thirds of their fortune is in U.S. banks and U.S. banks are making lots of money off of it. In fees alone, they're making millions, hundreds of millions. Um, if, if they get dissatisfied with him, he'll go fast, really fast. That's the reality of the situation. You ride, he's riding the tiger and they're the tiger. They will eat him. Um, then the question becomes, which one of them becomes the new dictator? Uh, yeah. <laughs> So it's not a solution necessarily. You might get rid of the worst one, but. <laughs> you know, I have got to add to the question when big part of the lead want to change the leader, they can change it. Yeah. And one part is the oligarchs and the second part is the army. And, you know, have in mind that there are a lot of victims in the army by this war. We don't know exactly the numbers, but they are quite high. And all these dead people are coming home, what brought home. And what are the mothers saying and the fathers? We will even have in Russia a much other climate than now. We have the opposition of the liberal part of the society. We have the opposition of many, many young people. The young generation in Russia is deeply against the war. You know, I had two uh, meetings with students of the Lomonosov University discussing about the war. None of these was in favor of the war. But don't forget, Moscow and the liberal elites are not really Russia. When you go to the Russia, to Siberia and many parts of Russia, they are only listening to these horrible TVs in Russia. And they know nothing else. So to change the atmosphere in the whole society, it will be done when people are seeing how horrible is the war, how many victims are in the war, and that our own soldiers and officers are the victims. So this will come quite soon. And I absolutely agree when the oligarchs want to change it, they will change it. But I'm not so sure what will happen then. And be very careful only to demonize Putin. 
You know, never forget that the Putin of today is not the Putin of 2001, when he was speaking in the German parliament, getting standing ovation for, the for his offer for cooperation solutions in Europe, for cooperative system from Lisboa till to Vladivostok. And it was the West, it was the NATO countries, which said no to these cooperations which were going to the east and accept more and more countries in NATO, which were militarizing the politics, which were blaming Putin day to day. So the Putin of today, this horrible nationalist chauvinistic guy, was made to such a guy also by the politics of the NATO countries. So the key point for getting corporate relations to Russia is to change the politics of our government that they are really go for a policy of common security, for cooperative relations, for integrate Russia in an inclusive European system, and at the end, for overcoming military alliances above all NATO. I think this is the answer. You know, the new leader of Russia could be even more worse. So be careful that we, we have to change the politics in our countries for a more peaceful way. That is the only solution for coming to a more peaceful world in this area and maybe in other parts of the world too. Nicole, let me add something to what Erbron uh, just said. We're doing the same thing to Xi Jinping in China. So, you know, this is act yeah. one. <laughs> I'd like to ask... Uh, you know, a little bit about the military situation. There's a uh, Biden has asked for 6.4 billion of aid, uh, a new military appropriation or whatever that's apparently going to be rolled into the uh, continuing resolution or whatever they call the next bill. Um, you know, how much difference will this uh, military aid matter to the outcome of the conflict? In my view, not very much at all. Uh, it'll just intensify and deepen the profound tragedy that it has become and might become even worse. Um, of course, the Pentagon is salivating over this. They have the best of all possible worlds. They're not in it, as it were, directly. And they are going to get a monstrous plus up in a budget that is already bigger than any budget since 1945. That's how huge their budget is right now. It is so huge, it's polluting the thinking over there. All they think about is more, more, more. So in that sense, it's going to do us irreparable damage if it's not already done it. The all-volunteer force is on its rear end. Um, they can't find enough people to serve in the force. Uh, I suspect you're going to have a lot more of that and other people's militaries here shortly. I like what Finland and Sweden and Norway have done or are in the process of doing. They reintroduced conscription, but their conscripts don't have to go overseas. Only the professional force goes overseas, uh, like, uh, like uh, went to Libya, for example. Did you know Libya, Norway led the air attacks in Libya? Mm -hmm. um, there are some people in Norway who are not very happy about that, but that's what, that's what getting closer to NATO will do for you. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, from my point of view, the day when the war starts, the military industrial complex in the United States and in Europe opened many bottles of champagne. This was the best gift they could get. Crude. Don't very wrong. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> for starting an arms race we never had since 45. We have such an enlargement of military budget in all NATO countries. That is amazing. And we have a deep change of that in all NATO countries. So we know what to do. And uh, the way our, our politics answer to this war is absolutely on one side double standards, And on the other side, amid an arms race, which will bring us really much nearer to a big international war. You know, we have in the discussion now to have European nuclear arms under the leadership of France and Germany. <laughs> we have a discussion now about new drones in Europe. We have the discussion about putting 50 to 100,000 troops to the border of Russia. We have in Germany the discussion of revitalize the job for the army to have an army for 400 or 500,000 people, which we stopped having after the Cold War period. That is the situation. And that makes the world much more unsecure. And that is absolutely the wrong way. So that is the consequences of this war is a totally other world we are coming in. And this makes the situation so, so dangerous and so, so difficult. Thank you. And did, did I think you want to ask your question? <laughs> oh, uh, I have a question for you, Reiner. Do you think that once the German people start feeling the uh, economic effects of these sanctions, might there be more questioning of following the U.S.? <laughs> You know, the conflicts between the United States on one side and Europe on the other side, including Germany, are now a little bit under the tarpet by the wall. They are not officially discussed, but they will come back because our interests are different. And Europe cannot have for long term the interest in being in total opposition to Russia. We need the context and the development of Russia. Because, you know, we have a common history. We have so many common. We need the economic, the political, the ecological, the social relations to Russia. And so this will come back. And for me, the main point is when the people see what are the consequences of the war for the militarization of the society, I'm very sure that we will have even more protests in the future. When the people see what are the ecological consequences of this war, because we don't have any money for the social ecological transformation of our society. We have no war to start fulfilling the obligation of the 2%. I'm not speaking about the 1.5%. For me, the 1.5% discussion is over. We will get this 1.5%. The question is if we can stop it after the 1.5%. So when people see all these consequences, I'm quite sure that we will have in more countries in Europe much broader movements of the all societal forces, not only of the peace forces, in the same direction for the change of politics. That is a consequence. We need a political change in Europe, and hopefully this will start when the people are seeing the consequences of the militarization in Europe. When you put more oil in the fire, you will not solve the fire. So we have to, to, to finish the fire. And this is we have to come to negotiations, ceasefire, reduction of the arms troop, and not to put more weapons in these, in these fires. Weapons, I know, Ukraine more than enough. What the people need is peace. 
its negotiations for a peace process and for the alternative security structure. Otherwise, we will go even deeper in the war. We will come to a situation where we have Afghanistan in the middle of Europe. And to stop this, we have to go for an alternative political way. And this starts with ceasefire. I'll take another another shot at it and say that Hitler put about 40, 42 divisions in the region that Tito was uh, more or less in charge of by 1943. And Hitler got roundly beaten. And Tito didn't have a lot of weapons. Um, Tito's motto was, yes, they have tanks. They have lots of tanks. And the tanks roll in. But they have to get out of the tanks. And when they do... We're going to kill him. And he did. Well, I've been reading reports about uh, uh, people in Ukraine giving soldiers the wrong directions, changing street signs, and uh, you know, seeking alternatives to a violent response. They did, they did that to Hitler's divisions when they flowed through Ukraine headed for Moscow. <laughs> they, they have seen a lot of war. Well, that will be our message, you know, this weekend when we protest uh, this invasion. We also want to protest the the expansion of NATO and any sending of arms. We know that the United States is in the process of sending millions of dollars of arms to Ukraine and Congress. The, the legislation that we just looked at is for $500 million more in weapons. Isn't it strange? I mean, just incredibly strange. You get Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Senate, standing up in the floor of the Senate and saying that he's with the president of the United States for the first time in God knows how long, and what he's with him on is more war. You know, we have the same in Germany. The opposition is supporting the government saying, please make more war and buy more weapons. Yeah. It's just astonishing. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., and KPFT in Houston. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. It's blood for oil. We know.